The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Years before Jesus was born, testifies very plainly to the bodily, the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. But it does more than that. It points ahead to eternal pleasures at the right hand of God. I love this one verse, verse 11. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Phenomenal verse of Scripture. We're going to look at it today. Now, we've had an extraordinary week, haven't we, as we've looked at uh, election returns and if we've kind of struggled with that. And I usually don't address these kinds of current events from here, but it's been remarkable. And I saved the uh, newspaper, which declared very early, uh, one of them is victorious. I think it's going to be worth something, at least more than the 50 cents we paid for it. Um, but uh, the fact of the matter is it points toward a, a hungering and a thirsting that some people have for power. I don't know why else anyone would go through such a wrenching procedure. But there really is an illusion to earthly power, isn't there? It's really the, the whole ebb and flow of human history has been after that kind of power. One empire rises up, and then another one comes and takes its place, one after the other. And there is no lasting power for change in that. There is a an illustration of this around the time, the day actually, literally the day that President Reagan was sworn in to office. At that time, there was a, going to be a transfer of hostages. I don't know if you remember that, the hostage uh, crisis in Iran, and they were being transferred that same day. And an aide to President Carter was keeping in, t uh, in touch with the process, what was going on, all morning long by phone. He took a break in the middle of one of those phone uh, conversations to watch the actual swearing in of the new president, President Reagan. Then he returned to the phone call and continued to ask questions about the process. And at that moment, the person he was talking to said, I'm sorry, sir, you're no longer cleared for that information. Just like that. And some people point to that as, a, as the, uh, the power of the American political system, that there is such a neat, clean transfer of power. There, are, there is an anarchy. There's not uh, people running in the streets and all that. But I think it also testifies to the fleetingness of temporal power. It's an illusion. It's here one day, and it's gone the next. Now, most of us aren't connected to that kind of power. I think more directly, we interact with this text on the issue of pleasure, on the issue of pleasure. Every day, we yearn for some kind of pleasures, and that's not wrong. We're wired for it, aren't we? If you look at a little girl eating an ice cream cone, she takes a lick, and it melts in her mouth, and it just goes down her throat, and she takes another one. Little by little, the ice cream cone dwindles, and then it's gone. She feels happy, and she doesn't realize that she's just experienced the temporal nature of earthly pleasure. She'll have to eat another ice cream cone another time. It's the way it is. All pleasure on this earth is temporal. It's going to disappear someday. I recently came back from vacation, so this is acute for me right now. Gone for a little while. And on that vacation, I went with my son and daughter, Nathaniel and Jenny. We went hiking up uh, a beautiful mountain. We were in the western part of the state, uh, past west of Asheville, and we were looking at the beautiful Smoky Mountains, and we climbed up and came to a clearing. You know what I'm talking about? One of those clearings where the valley just drops away, and the foliage is there, 
And we sat on this kind of rocky ledge, and we looked out over that. And I said, let's just be quiet for a moment. Let's just be quiet and listen. We're so far from anything man-made, the only sounds we will hear are sounds that God's created. And so we listened to the wind blowing deeply over that valley. You know what I'm telling you? It's a deep sound and a powerful one. And we just soaked it in. And then after a little while, somebody said something. Somebody else said something. We started conversing. We got up and we walked away. Went down in the car and it's been a descent ever since then. And here I am. <laughs> From that mountaintop experience. But all of those mountaintop experiences are temporary. You can't hold on to them. And I actually feel as I'm there that I wish I had another sense to take it in. My five senses aren't enough. Have you ever felt that before? C.S. Lewis felt that in a writing he wrote called Till We Have Faces, an amazing work. And he's picking up on the, on the myth of uh, Cupid and Psyche. And at one point in his writing, he talks about Psyche. And, and Psyche is talking to her friend, Arul. And this is what she says. It was when I was happiest that I longed the most. It was on happy days when we were up there on the hills, the three of us, with the wind and the sunshine. You remember? The color and the smell, looking across the gray mountain in the distance. And because it was so beautiful, it set me longing, always longing. Somewhere else, there must be more of it. Everything seemed to be saying, Psyche, come. But I couldn't, not yet come. And I didn't know where I was to come to. It almost hurt me. I felt like a bird in a cage when the other birds of its kind are flying home. The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to reach the mountain, to find the place where all the beauty came from. Now, where is that place? It's in the presence of God. He sent it. And he puts you together to experience it. And not just for a moment, but for eternity. And all of these temporary pleasures that you enjoy, that time takes from you one at a time, they all point to an eternal pleasure at the right hand of God. And David, King David, writing 3,000 years ago, testifies to it. Let's look at Psalm 16. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. 
Now, as with all of these messianic psalms, we have to deal with the original context in which David wrote. David was a king, Jewish king, lived 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years before Jesus Christ. He was a poet. He wrote of his relationship with God. He was also a prophet. And the things he wrote, which are recorded and kept for us in Scripture, are prophecy. And with all of these messianic prophecies, there's an element that relates just to David and his immediate circumstance, and then some elements that cannot or do not relate to David, but are lifted up above that circumstance and point ahead to Jesus Christ. That's especially true here in this psalm, as Peter and Paul will point out as we get along in our preaching this morning. There's a portion of Psalm 16 that cannot relate to King David, and it points to eternal pleasure at God's right hand. Now, in verse 1, David speaks of his security. Realize that David was in a dangerous position. He was a king, and uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. There's always somebody that wants to grab the crown from you. And so David had many enemies. We've talked about this before. Now, where was going to, David going to find his security from his enemies? Well, he says in verse 1, Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. The picture here is of, of God as a, as a strong fortress, a walled city, like Jerusalem itself, up on a mountain, hard to attack. And anyone inside the walls of that fortress were safe. And so he comes to God and he says, keep me safe and protected, for I've taken refuge in you. But he goes beyond that. David's security is God alone, but he goes beyond that and talks about his pleasures. His pleasures in life. And the ultimate pleasure is God himself. Look at verse 2. He says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. <clears throat> Is that not true? Apart from God, we have nothing good. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. What good thing do you have in your life that you didn't receive from God? David knew it. He said, you are the Lord. You are my God. And apart from you, I have nothing good. Now, it's a terrifying phrase, isn't it? Apart from you. It is really the picture of hell. We think about the lake of fire and the torment and all that, and it's terrifying enough. But the worst part of all is to be apart from God. Jesus saying on Judgment Day, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Depart from me. Be away from me, the source of everything good. David said, I don't want to be apart from you. Apart from you, I have nothing good. I want to be immersed in you. I want to be close to you. What goodness comes to us apart from God? Psalmist in Psalm 73 said this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. You are my good, O Lord, and King David knew it well. But more than just fellowship with God in prayer and in his walking with God came a stream of gifts to David from God's bounty, God's generous gifts just flowing to him one after the other. Look at verse 3. He says, As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. Is there anything quite as delightful on this earth as good, solid fellowship with other Christians? It's a pleasure, isn't it? And it's going to be more and more of a pleasure the more our surrounding culture becomes un- or even anti-Christian. We delight in fellowship with one another. There's a community of believers here, and we share things at our heart, at our core. And he says, David says, the godly ones in the land, I delight in them. I enjoy them. I want to be with them. And they're a gift from you, O Lord. 
They are the glorious ones, he says, in whom is all my delight. And that's a gift from God. So also is freedom from the sorrow of sin. Look what he says in verse 4. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood nor take their names on my lips. David absolutely refuses fellowship with pagans who worship false gods. There's none of that truth for you, truth for me thing with David. He doesn't want any part of that. There is one and there is only one true God. Now, if you read on in the history of Israel, you saw all the syncretism. One king after another would blend worship of Yahweh together with worship of Baal or Molech, other gods. David wanted no part of that. And why? Because it brought sorrow. The sorrows of those who run after other gods are going to increase. I don't want that sorrow. I want to follow you, O Lord, because in you is the fullness of joy. I want to be close to you. And then he speaks of a pleasant earthly situation. Verses 5 and 6, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I like to be in the presence of contented people, don't you? Have you ever been with somebody who's constantly grumbling and irritable about their earthly lot? It's difficult to be with. Well, let's turn the whole thing around. Have you ever been in the presence of somebody who's genuinely deeply content with what God's given them? I'd rather have contentedness than all the things I want. Wouldn't you? Think about it. Because all the things you want come and you still want, and you want, and more and more. I'd rather have the gift of contentedness. David had that gift. He said, I'm satisfied, God, with what you've given me. Well, David, easy for you. Look at you. You've got a palace of cedar, and you've got a kingship and all that. That doesn't guarantee happiness. He's contented because he sees these gifts as coming to him from God. It wasn't just that the boundary lines fell in pleasant places. No, they came from God. The lot was cast, but its every decision came from God. The image here is of, of Joshua leading the people into the promised land. The whole land stretched out before them. Who's going to get what? Now, that could have been quite a squabble. We're seeing squabbles now, but it's nothing compared to what it would have been there. Will I get this piece of land? Will I get that? God said, we're going to cast lots for it. This is the way it's going to be. And each tribe got an allotted inheritance. And David said, I'm satisfied with what you gave me, God. Pleasant to me. I think about the American West when all that territory stretched out. You think about the Sooners, the Oklahoma Sooners, and all that, and, the, and that last land grab. Some of the land's better than others. Some of it's fertile, rich soil with a river running through it. But just to be content with what God's given you, David was content. And that too was from God. And then finally he mentioned constant counsel and guidance. God never left David alone. He never felt like he was on his own. He had advice. He had wisdom. I praise the Lord, verse 7, who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. Nowadays, some people will pay thousands of dollars a year for advice and counsel. But David got it straight from God. What a blessed life. Constant pleasure in God's friendship. Fellowship with other believers. Freedom from the sorrow of sin and paganism a delightful earthly lot straight from God's hand, and constant wisdom and counsel even at night. Now, what could, what could rob that? Well, there is something, isn't there? It's called the grave. The grave. And that's the whole problem with earthly pleasures, is that death stands over all of them and mocks them. And so we've got to deal with this death problem, don't we? And so the second part of the psalm, he's addressing that. 
I set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. What is he talking about there? He's talking about the threat of death. And that because of the Lord, he's not afraid of the grave. And so thus the psalm. But about a thousand years later or more, along came a burly fisherman, Peter, stood up on Pentecost, and he had a certain insight into this psalm. Where in the world did a blue-collar worker like Peter get this insight into the psalm? Could it be that Jesus showed it to him in that little 40-day seminar they had where they went over the psalms in detail? Peter, on Pentecost, when you get up there, preach on Psalm 16 and preach on my bodily resurrection because David didn't fulfill this. This wasn't fulfilled by David. It's waiting for me, and I have now fulfilled it. And so Peter stood up, Acts chapter 2, and he says, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his Holy One see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Now, what is he getting at here? He's focusing on one word, isn't he? The word decay. The word decay. Very strong word here in the Hebrew. David says, my flesh will not be abandoned. It's the same word used for the sacrificial offerings. Basar is the Hebrew word flesh. My flesh will not be abandoned to the grave. It's very physical. And you're not going to let me see decay, he says. Now this word decay literally means pit or ditch. It refers to the grave, but it, at its root it means destruction. Destruction. The same word is used in Jeremiah 13:7. God commanded Jeremiah to take a linen belt from around his waist and go near a river and dig a hole near the river and stick that cloth belt into the bottom of that murky, muddy hole and then fill it back up. And then come back sometime later and take it back out. What did it look like? It was ruined. It was destroyed. It was decayed. It was rotted. And the word rotted in the NIV is the same word that we get here. You'll not abandon me to the process of rot or destruction in the grave. Now, this was a real issue. It's an issue for all of us. Do you remember when Jesus went to uh, raise Lazarus from the dead? And he stands in front of that tomb and he says, roll away the stone. Do you remember what Martha said? He said, but Lord, he's been there four days and there's bound to be a terrible odor. I don't want to get too graphic, but this is what's waiting for us, folks. Don't spend too much time on your body. It's heading to the grave. Just like David's. Right before David died, time drew near for it, 1 Kings 2, 1 and 2. It says, when the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son, I am about to go the way of all the earth. What does that mean? I'm about to go the way of all the earth? What happens in all the earth? What is common to all peoples everywhere? Well, many things, but this is one of them, death. And then after that, destruction in the grave. It's common to everyone. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. All right, well, then, David, what are you talking about here? You will not let your Holy One see decay. Ah, this brings us back to Peter. He's not talking about himself. He is not talking about himself. Can't. 
Why? Because he died and was buried and his body rotted in the tomb right there. But there was one to come, a holy one to come, who would not see decay. And who is that? It is Jesus Christ who triumphed over the grave, rose victorious on the third day. The Apostle Paul sometime later made the same argument in Pisidian Antioch, Acts 13. This is his sermon. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've become your father. We already covered that one. And then it says, the fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep, he was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is preached to you. Isn't that beautiful? Because of one word in a thousand-year-old prophecy, the word decay, we have a sure and certain hope of triumph over the grave. David decayed, but Jesus didn't. And so the prophecy came true in Christ. We have a historical faith, don't we? Things happen in history, and it matters whether they happened or whether they don't. The Apostle Paul said, if Jesus is still in the grave, then your faith is what? Worthless. It's as worthless as that linen belt in the bottom of that murky hole. Worthless. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, your faith is worthless. But he did rise from the dead. And not only that, it was predicted a thousand years beforehand. So here we have the two greatest historical evidences of the truth of Christianity. Fulfilled prophecy and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. And they come together in this one verse. We have a solid and secure hope for triumph over the grave. And it provides a basis, a foundation for eternal pleasure at God's right hand. Now, modern scholarship tells you there was no resurrection in the Old Testament. They never predicted it. They, Sheol, the grave, was it, it was over. That is so wrong, so faulty. Isaiah 53 speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. How much more plainly can you see it? After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The suffering servant died and rose again, Isaiah 53. And he did it all for us. Therefore, the forgiveness of sins is preached to you. He was our substitute. And just as he took on our corruption and our sin and death, so also he gives us eternal life and his resurrection victory. There are other prophecies in the Old Testament. You can look them up. They're written in your outline there. Job 19. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. How my heart yearns within me. Job 19. Don't listen to these Old Testament experts. The Old Testament preaches a resurrection, and not just for Jesus, but for you as well. Now, what was Christ raised to? Look at it again. He says, therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. 
because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Now let's focus on Jesus Christ, because this is speaking of Christ. Christ was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. And then he was raised from the dead into eternal pleasures at his own heavenly Father's right hand. You can't measure the amount of joy the Son has in the Father's presence. Oh, how he yearned for it. He was hungry and thirsty for it. He was willing to take on a human body. And he was willing to experience a kind of a separation from God on the cross under the wrath of God for us. But he yearned to be back in face-to-face -face fellowship with his heavenly Father. In John 17, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Oh, he knows that pleasure. He said the same thing later in that prayer. He said, I will remain in the world no longer, but they, the disciples, are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Can you sense the, I can't wait? I'm coming to you, Father. I can't wait to be with you. I can't wait to see you, to be in your very presence. And then again in verse 13, John 17, 13, he says, I am coming to you now. And then as he's hanging on the cross, Luke 23, 46, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And with that he breathed his last. Right into the presence of God. Eternal pleasure at the right hand of God. But you know something? He already had that from eternity past, didn't he? Why did he go through all that? What was the purpose of all that suffering, just to get back where he was before? It was because none of us would have experienced that eternal pleasure at his right hand. So the psalm doesn't refer to David initially, but it comes back to refer to him in the end, doesn't it? Because Jesus suffered in David's place, David will have eternal pleasure at God's right hand. Because Jesus suffered in your place, if you're a believer in Christ, you also will experience eternal pleasure at God's right hand. That's the whole point. That's what he came for. He already had that before. He came to get it for you. John 14, 19, because I live, you also will live. Because I ascend, you also will ascend. Because I have a resurrection body, you also will get one. Because I am seated at the right hand of God, you also will be seated there too. Because I enjoy eternal pleasure at my Father's right hand, you'll enjoy it too, forever and ever. That's why I came, to give it to you. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean, first fruits? Well, the first one. But what does it imply? Second fruits and third fruits and fourth and fifth and more than anyone can count, a multitude greater than anyone could count, standing in the presence of God, redeemed through the blood of the Lamb. Well, when will it happen? You want it. You want it today, right? Are you hungry and thirsty for it today? Well, each in his own turn, it says, 1 Corinthians 15, 23. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. You get your resurrection body when he comes. You have to wait until then. And waiting is the hardest part, isn't it? You have to wait. But there is a path for you. There's a journey to be trod. Jesus said to his disciples the night before he died and earned all this, he said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, 
I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. What's the next thing he says? You know the way to the place where I am going. Look down at verse 11. You have made known to me the path of life. Isn't that the same teaching? You, you have made known to me the path of life, Psalm 1611. You know the way to the place where I'm going. There's a journey. There's a path of life. And you know it, said Jesus to his disciples. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And what did Jesus say? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one gets the eternal pleasures of God at his right hand except through me. That's the way you get it through me, but you will get it through me. I am the way. Look at verse 11. I am the way, the living way, into the very presence of God. And so it comes around to our eternal pleasure. Now, pleasure, that's kind of a, kind of a dirty word, isn't it? We don't want pleasures. <laughs> don't you mean joy? Isn't that what we mean, joy? One of those cleaner, crisper Christian words. Pleasure is kind of dirty. It's a little sullied, isn't it? No, it says pleasure, eternal pleasure. Not just a little pleasure, but a lot of pleasure. Pleasure, 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 forever. Well, what are these pleasures? What do we get? What do we get? Well, C.S. Lewis in his sermon, Weight of Glory, lists five things you get. They're not in your outline, so you'd have to listen carefully what they are. You get number one, we shall be with Christ face to face. Number two, we shall be like Christ, transformed to be like Him. Number three, we shall be in some sense glorious. Glorious. Remember how I told you that I wanted a, another sense to take it into myself? When I'm looking at that valley, all that beauty, it's not enough just to see, it's not enough just to taste or to hear. I want more. We will be glorious, not just see glory. It will come into us. It will transform us like Moses' face shining radiantly. We shall be glorious. Number four, we shall in some sense, I'm quoting Lewis now, be fed, feasted, or entertained with heavenly pleasures. There's all these feast language. You know, this feast, the wedding feast, the banquet of the Lamb. There's these, this image of, of feasting in the presence of God. And then number five, we will have some sort of official position in the universe, reigning with Christ at his right hand, this kind of thing. These are the five things. Now, what did you do to merit all that? Nothing. It's given to you as a gift of grace, just by simply believing and trusting in Christ. Eternal pleasure at his right hand. Christ himself face to face. Transformed to be like Christ, including his resurrection body. Glorious. Feasting in his presence. And somehow, in some manner, reigning with him in an official position. Now, you should say, I shouldn't want that. That's so mercenary. I shouldn't want something for myself. Try to deny it. When you're cold, what do you do? Rectify the situation if you can. Put on a sweater, etc. When you're hungry, you eat. You can't deny your yearning for pleasure. What I'm saying is channel it properly toward God and realize that every earthly pleasure you have is temporal. It will go away. Anything you can touch, including loved ones, people you love, your husband, your wife, your kids, the, it, the relationship as such, as it is now, is temporary. Don't cling too tightly. But all of these temporary pleasures, ice cream flowing down the throat, the 
sound of the wind and the sight of the foliage, all of these temporary pleasures point ahead to an eternal pleasure at God's right hand. You're wired for it, and God has not designed you to be frustrated, but rather satisfied in Christ. Find your joy in him. Pascal writes about this. There was once in man a true happiness, of which now remains to him only the mark and empty trace, which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in things present. But these are all inadequate, because the infinite abyss can only be filled with an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, God himself. You're designed for pleasure, but it's not here. It's not here. And while you're physical, and you have five senses, and they get filled up with good gifts from God, that's fine. But you must not live for them. How do we apply the things that we've learned? First and foremost, glory and fulfilled prophecy. We've seen one after another. Do you see the certainty of your faith? A thousand years before Jesus, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, clearly written about in this. Rejoice that Jesus' resurrection victory was not for his own glory. He already had that. It was for you, that you may enjoy eternal pleasures at his right hand. Because I live, you also will live. Thirdly, about these earthly temporal pleasures, beware of them. They are so tempting. They pull your eyes off of that which is eternal onto those things that are temporal. Jesus said, do not store up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Won't you close with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, you have given us many blessings. They fill our senses every day. Blessings of beauty, delicious blessings, soothing ones, O oh Lord. And every one of them has come from you as a gift of your grace. Oh, but Heavenly Father, may we not live for them. May we look beyond them, O oh Lord, to the source. Eternal pleasure at your right hand should be our goal and our yearning. O oh, Heavenly Father, Thank you that you have conquered the enemy which would have taken all of this from us, death, the grave. Oh, Jesus, thank you for your resurrection victory. Father, I fear that there are some hearing me today who will not come to faith in Christ, who do not believe in you for salvation. Oh, Lord, their eyes are filled with this world, their heart too. God, I pray that you would save them, that they would come off the sand onto a solid rock, into a refuge, a strong tower which will never be shaken. The promise of God that whoever repents and trusts in Christ will have eternal life. And for all of us who already know you, oh God, I pray that we would not set our hearts on things below, but rather on things above and live for them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life. 
the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.